You read a passage like that and kind of feel like Moses in front of the burning bush. Standing on holy ground. It's where we always stand when we come to God's word, but I'm particularly feeling that way this morning. There's a lot to cover. We're not going to be able to cover it all. Wish we could. But may God give us grace as we approach such an astounding passage. I have a lot of respect for historians. I appreciate that there are people who give their lives a lot of time and dedicated to understanding what has happened in the past. See, through historians, we get to benefit from the past. We can build on the advances of the past. We can learn from the mistakes of the past and hopefully avoid them in the future. History can give us a sense of place. Where do we fit in in the broad scope of humanity? And historians work hard in the face of some pretty tough obstacles, don't they? Their ability to know what happened in the past is totally dependent on dead people. People who they cannot call up and interview. People who chose to record certain things and chose not to record certain things. We often, at least I do, marvel at how much a historian knows. And yet a good historian will be the first person to tell you that there's so much that they don't know. No historian would ever claim to even have an exhaustive understanding of their particular person that they study or the year they write about or the people group that they chose to look into. And certainly no historian would ever claim to have knowledge that covers all the events of history from the beginning to today taking into account every individual and every nation that has come and gone. See, a historian just simply cannot write in good conscience about what they don't know. That's why if you go to the bookstore, you're probably not going to find a legitimate history of the space galaxies. Because we have no idea what's going on out there. We can't see it. Never, never met anybody from there. So it's not surprising, is it, with so much that we don't know, that there would be so many different ideas and views about history as there are. Science, theories, religion, anti-religion, philosophy, all of these and others and some idea about the purpose of everything, where history is headed and where it's not headed. What's your view of history? From what you know, from what you perceive, what's the point of it all? How do you account for the things that you perhaps don't know? And what difference does history make? In your life. Christians. 
members like members of this church, those who follow the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. We've always trusted in God to answer those questions for us. He's a perfect historian because he knows everything because he created everything. He's been around from the beginning and even before then. And not only does he know it all, he planned it all. And the important parts, what he knows and what he plans, at least the important things for us to know, he has given to us in the Bible. God has told us his plan, his purpose, and his priorities for us. So this morning, we're going to be asking three questions as we look at Ephesians chapter 3. First, what is God's plan? Second, what is his purpose? And third, what are his priorities for us? First, what is God's plan? And we'll look more specifically at verses 1 through 6. Paul, the apostle, is writing a letter to a group in a geographical area called Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. These are believers, those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation. And he's emphasized throughout the letter that God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all together, as the Trinity, been on one singular mission to save people. The Father chooses to show His love The Son gives His life to buy His people out of slavery to sin. And the Holy Spirit gives the power necessary to make people who are spiritually dead come to life. And all this happens, we understand from Paul's letter, because God chose to give grace. Grace, a free gift that comes completely from Him and not from ourselves. Now, all of this is really good news if if you are, in fact, included in the people God chooses. But if you look at how God had worked in the past, Paul's past, before Paul, before Jesus, you might conclude that only Jews were part of God's salvation plan. He had only chosen them, as we read in the Old Testament, and made to them specific promises. Promises only with them called covenants and promises that would bless them. Other nations were given the opportunity to be included in these promises, but anybody outside Israel would have to adopt all Jewish customs, all the religious practices, all the beliefs in order to receive the benefits of God's promises. In other words, they would have to become Jews. See, the Bible divides the world into two groups, Jews and Gentiles, or anybody who's not a Jew. At the time Paul wrote this letter, it's estimated that only 2.5% of the world's population at the time were Jews. 97.5% then were Gentiles. Probably the ratio is even bigger 
today. And listen to how Paul describes the Gentiles. They are those who are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I wonder, would that be an accurate description of you this morning? That had been the state of things for thousands of years. But then something changed. Or better said, something happened. It was not, that, it was not something that anybody really was expecting either. Paul doesn't even assume that all the Gentiles reading this letter and listening to it read had heard about this, this happening. That's why he interrupts his thought in verse 1. You see that? He's going somewhere else in his thought process, probably to the prayer in verse 14. But he stops to explain that God had shown to him the meaning of a great mystery. I like a good mystery. We call them mysteries, don't we? Because there's a hidden solution to a seemingly unsolvable problem. And in our experience, probably the problem is like a crime. If you watch a mystery show or read a mystery novel, the main character, who is usually a detective or something, has, has to work with several pieces, these little fragments of ev- evidence. And the way the pieces fit together to form a solution to the crime, pieces, the solution, it's just, it's all hidden at the start. So the detective assembles the evidence. He tries to put it together this way, and that doesn't work. He tries to put it together this way. And finally, in the last five minutes of the hour and a half mystery show we've been watching, or the last page of the 500-page mystery novel we've been reading, it all comes together. And the main character has revealed the solution to the mystery. And we all sit back and say, ah, now I see. Now I get it. I see how those pieces fit together. Now, wouldn't it be a terrible experience if we were watching and five minutes before the show ends, screen goes black. Or we get to the last chapter of the novel and somebody ripped out the pages. We wouldn't know. We'd be left out there trying to make sense of the problem without a solution. You know, if, if maybe today is your first time being in a church, and I talk about the Bible and you've never actually seen one or read one, let me, let me tell you this. If you read the Bible, if you, if you picked one up and started on page 1, Genesis 1, and read through that first half, which we call the Old Testament, and you get to that last book, Malachi, you finish reading and you stop, you might feel like a person reading a mystery. There would be a lot of unanswered questions. See, you would, you would read about this amazing God who creates the world and creates us, human beings, to live in it. And it's all good and it's perfect. And then a problem. The humans God created rebel against His righteous rule. And death 
is the curse laid on all of us for that rebellion. But then you just get a hint, only a hint, that a rescuer is going to come and save these people. Then God calls, as you move through the Old Testament, these people, the Jews, to be His people. They're they're not much to look at. That's what the Bible tells us. They're not great. They're not powerful. And that's why God chose them. And then, the history of this people, things get more mysterious. Because they go through this cycle after cycle of disobedience to God who chose them. And by the end of Malachi, everything is messed up. People are enslaved, not rescued. And when you turn a couple pages over and you begin to read in the second half, the New Testament... The Jews are in bondage to the Roman government. This is hardly the realization of the promises or to the Jews what they were expecting would be the fulfillment of the promises God had made to them as a people in the Old Testament. And other questions too. What about all the people who aren't Jews? And whatever happened to that promised rescuer? So then you get to the life of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus shows up. He starts doing miraculous things. He starts healing people. He starts performing all these miracles. And people around him start to say, Oh, I've got it figured out. This mystery, I think I see how it comes together now. And what do they do? They attempt to make Jesus their king based on their knowledge of the Old Testament. See, they thought that the Messiah that the Old Testament was talking about, the promised one, the anointed one, the the ruler, the Savior, it's got to be Jesus. And the way He's going to save us is He's going to rid us of the Roman government and set us up in our own land again. Finally, all the promises our father Abraham gave us, they're going to come true. But then it becomes clear When Jesus, the supposed king, dies on a cross, that they had not solved the mystery of Christ. See, when Jesus died, nobody, 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 not even Jesus' disciples, His closest friends on earth, None of them thought there was any possible connection left between Jesus and the Old Testament. Jesus and the promises to God's people. No one knew then, if Jesus was their hope and Jesus is dead, no one now knows how to put these pieces together. Where was the solution for God's promises And the Jewish enslavement. Where was the solution between God's holiness and this sinful humanity? Where was the solution between this promised rescuer and this dead Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you have no idea 
how to solve this mystery. Perhaps you're realizing that you may not have God or Jesus figured out like you thought you did. Could it be dawning on you that as a Gentile and really as just a sinner, regardless of your ethnicity, that you don't have a solution to the problem that you are cut off from God and cut off from His promised salvation. If that's you, you are in the best place you could possibly be this morning. Because the mystery has been revealed. And it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. So think about what promises you're hanging on to. And think about if they will really be able to rescue you. Or if you need a new and real and different rescuer. Paul, in verses 4 to 6, he pulls back the curtain on this mystery of Jesus Christ. Specifically, as it relates to the Gentiles. What no eye has seen, he writes in 1 Corinthians 2. What no, no ear has heard. What the heart of man has not imagined, God reveals to Paul and through Paul to the end and to Paul and to the rest of the apostles through the Spirit. Here's the mystery. Here's the part of the mystery that Paul focuses in on. God's salvation through Jesus Christ would include Gentiles. It would include Gentiles. They would become heirs of those promises. They would be included in the family of God. They would be able to know without a doubt that God's promises to save and to rescue applied to them too. And it's the mystery of Christ, as Paul says, Because Christ is the way that God's plan opens up to all nations, all tribes, and all people. This message, this mystery revealed is what Paul calls the gospel in verse 6. See, Jesus came to earth with a plan. He had a plan. might not look like it from the outside, He didn't have a plan to stage this violent overthrow of the Roman government like people thought. No, he had a plan to die. It was a plan to die so that peace could be made between us and God. That's the key piece of the mystery that no one understood. Christ's death on the cross unlocks the mystery of God's plan. I wish we had time to go back one chapter because Paul explains in detail how that all works in chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. I'd encourage you sometime this week, go back and see specifically what Paul talks about there. But to summarize, the only way for us to be brought near to God was for our sins, our rebellion, 
the thing that distances us from a holy God, those things had to be taken care of. That's why Jesus' death on a cross is the key. How does the distance get removed? How do we get brought in to the family of God? How can we have boldness to be in the presence of God? We can't with our sin. But when Jesus goes to the cross, He takes on Himself the penalty for our sins, the punishment we deserved, laid on Him. He dies in our place. He offers Himself as a sacrifice for us to pay for the wrath that should have fallen on us because we are rebels against the Holy God. When Jesus dies, He's buried. Three days later, He comes out of the grave and proves that He has authority to grant forgiveness of sin and proves Himself the victor over death and of sin. He had to die for us to be brought in. This is the mystery unfolded for Jews and for Gentiles. It's the mystery that becomes good news to you and me. If in response to it we recognize we are sinners, like the Bible describes us. We are rebels. And if we turn from our ways of sin and trust in what Christ has done to pay for that sin on the cross, we put our belief in Him, then the mystery revealed is the good news for you and for me today. This may have been a mystery to everyone else, but it was no mystery to God. This was His plan. The Trinity was completely involved, totally devoted to making this plan happen so that we might know God. The Father reveals the plan to Paul. Christ carries out the plan by dying. The Spirit causes us to understand these things so we might believe them. So if you understand these things this morning, if you believe them, it's because God loved you. It's because the Trinity showed you grace and showed mercy to you. So praise, and not pride, praise is the right response to God's revelation to us. God's plan for peace remains a mystery still to much of the world. We say as a world that we want world peace. But in our own little worlds, we see and we seek for division. We go to war as nations and we go to war as neighbors to protect our own self-interest. We hate people who live on the other side of our borders And on the other side of our hall, we value people with high incomes and degrade those who have little. We avoid forgiveness and we linger in grudges and bitterness. This is the way of the whole world. It's the curse of sin. What division is there in your life? Are you creating it? What's your peace plan? And will it achieve peace with God? We couldn't solve this mystery without God revealing to us 
the solution in Jesus. So this is why we keep going back to God's revelation, the Bible. It's the, and, and to the center of that revelation, which is the gospel. The Bible was God's decision, the way he chose to show us what no otherwise. Show us himself and his salvation. And this is why Bible study in our small groups is so important for us. This is why we encourage you to be studying the Bible together one-on-one in our church. This is why we pray for the preaching of the Word of God. Why we pray for the Spirit to open our eyes to it and help us to understand it. Because we're blind otherwise. This is why this church seeks to preach the gospel faithfully every Friday. When we hear the gospel and the Spirit gives understanding, we get to see the solution to history's greatest mystery. How can a sinful people be saved? God's plan was not just to save Jews, but Gentiles. People from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. And his plan was accomplished through the peacemaking work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Second question. If that's God's plan, what is God's purpose behind his plan? What is God's purpose? And that's we see in verses 7 through 13. The Apostle Paul clearly sees that God had a specific purpose on his own life. Read verses 7 through 9. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. One part of God's purpose was that people would hear the gospel and be saved. And, be saved. and God made that purpose happen through a specific process. Did you see that in the passage? The process of salvation has always followed this specific pattern. God shows us grace. He delivers the gospel to us through a messenger. And His Spirit gives us power to believe the message. So when Paul preached the revelation that he received, he didn't then... Worry about what then would happen. He knew God would do the rest. He knew that God chooses to use preachers in the revealing of his mystery. But when he says, I'm the least of all the saints, it's clear that he understands that God doesn't depend on him to make his revelation known to the world. When you share the gospel with someone, what do you think happens next? Told them about Jesus. If the person rejects the gospel, do you think it's because you failed to present it in just the right way? If the person hears and believes, do you conclude that you are the master of evangelism? No, of course not. See, the key of conversion is not our presentation of the gospel. It's the power of God working through the gospel, the gospel that He has given us grace to present to others. 
Christian, God had a purpose in revealing the gospel to you. To you specifically. It was to bring you in and it was to send you back out. I might be the one preaching this morning, but all of us, if you know Jesus, are preachers. We're all ministers of this gospel. We are all equipped to reveal this mystery to other people. I encourage you to be about that purpose this week with your families, with your in your office where you work, with your friends and the people God brings into your life. This is God's purpose for you. But there's another bigger purpose at work, isn't there? Look at verse 10. Paul says that he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles so that, that's a purpose statement, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, when the, when the gospel is preached, those who believe are brought together as one body, which we call the church. And when this, when this happens, this, this gathering of the church together around the gospel, God accomplishes a bigger purpose. He puts his wisdom on display for the universe. You see that? The manifold wisdom of God on display to people in the heavens? John Stott writes about this. He says, as the gospel spreads throughout the world, the new church develops. It's as if a great drama is being enacted. History is the theater. The world is the stage. And church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the plan and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. It's an amazing drama God is doing through us. But you see too that God's salvation, if this is true, God's salvation is not primarily about us then, is it? His ultimate plan was for praise to be brought back to him. This is why God does what he does. It's always been his motive. It will always be wrong of him to do anything but this. That's why he's God. Because all he does is worthy of all our praise. So God's plan was hidden from humanity. God's plan was hidden from heaven. Even heaven. Even the angels that sit around his throne praising him constantly, didn't know about this. And when God brings his church into being, these heavenly beings watch with astonishment as the many pieces of the mystery from their perspective start to come together. God is a holy God. He's just. He's right. The creatures he made have rebelled against him. But he's love. He's mercy. He's grace. How can these things come together? And there, the church is created. And God in his wisdom displays to the universe that he had a plan for all of it. I hope 
you, church, rejoice that God is accomplishing such amazing things through bringing you together. There's so many sides to this wisdom. That's why Paul calls it manifold. There's his power that he uses to bring people in, to bring them in to hear the gospel. There's his sovereign control, which plans and orchestrates everything. There's the wisdom displayed in his son, Jesus, the center of God's purposes. Through Jesus, God's riches become our riches. We inherit his name. We become members of his family. We're reconciled to our Father. Our sins are forgiven. We're purchased out of slavery by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all Jesus, what he did for us. Belief in him as Savior for sinners opens the way up. The way that was closed because of God's holiness is open. We get to walk through Jesus to have access to God. You know, life can be a very trying journey if we're looking down the whole way. If we're looking at every step, every hardship, every trial, every circumstance, we're going to lose sight of this perspective. We're going to lose heart. It seems that in verse 13... Paul is at least anticipating or sensing that the Ephesians had fallen into this trap of losing heart. They heard about his imprisonment and they were discouraged. And Paul's response is this. You need to see the bigger purpose God has at work in this. You need to see that your glory is involved and God's glory. So what is a little imprisonment to me, Paul? What's a little persecution if God's doing this? Eventually, what does it matter if I'm executed? How can we maintain that kind of perspective in our circumstances this week? If the church is this central to God's plan in history, then certainly it should be central to our lives, shouldn't it? So if you aren't a member of a church but claim to be following Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you to align your life to the purposes God has for His church. Align yourself to His church. If you want to know what that would look like in this church, we're going to be having some membership classes on June 13th. I'd encourage you to find out more information about that so that you can come and learn. If not here, somewhere where the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed. You know, when God unites people around the gospel, his wisdom shines, doesn't it? Unity in the middle of diversity is so confusing to the world around us. Here we are, dozens of potential racial, ethnic, social, economic, family divisions that might divide us. But here we are, united in Jesus. Something has united us. And people can see that there's love between us. And when that's on display, and people ask, what's the reason for this mystery? We can tell them the gospel. And we can say, Jesus Christ has done it all. This is also why divisions in the church are so potentially damaging 
and dangerous. Discord, factions, fights, quarrels, slander, gossip. You know, those things aren't just about you and another person. They completely distort the picture of the gospel in this world. Instead of love and unity that Christ provides, the world sees strife and hate brought in by our sin. Be on guard against these things, church. Against pride and anger. Against bitterness. That might even now be in your heart against another brother and sister. I'd encourage you to take care of that. With God and with the person you have sinned against. Even before you proclaim outwardly our unity in God at the community ta- communion table this morning. Handle that now. Even if you need to leave the service to do so. God's forgiveness has put our warfare at rest with Him and our warfare with one another. Instead, He provides grace, love, forgiveness, patience, self-sacrifice. And all these things, as we live them out with one another, display the wisdom of God in the world around us. Our third question, finally. What then are God's priorities for us, His church? What are God's priorities for us, His church? By verse 14, Paul has been unfolding and unpacking, as we've seen, God's salvation plan for the last, really, three chapters of the whole book. And so, by this point in his letter, you see, he just, he just has to respond. He has to respond, and he responds in prayer. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father and praise. And it's not his first prayer. In chapter 1, 15 through 20, 23, he asks that, that God give the believers insight and wisdom to see the hope God holds out for his people and the power God works in them through the Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, consequently. Now, in chapter 3, verse 14, coupled with what he prayed for in chapter 1, he asks that God would take what he's revealed and put it to work in their life. Not just that they would understand God's power with their mind, but that they would be strengthened with it. Not just that they would know the hope, but that they would have faith and believe it. Uh, I have to confess to you that, that this prayer is, is just so huge. It's so full of meaning and significance. I, I wish that we could take a week on every single phrase and just dive deep into this. It would be so good for us. I feel like as we're about to go through this prayer, that we're gonna, it's going to be like flying in a helicopter over the ocean when you can see clearly everything that's in there that you want to take a closer look and you just can't dive into it. So I acknowledge that. And I feel that tension. But let's look at it with what time we have. The prayer moves to a goal. It's like a staircase with a higher and higher aspiration for the people of God at every step. So, 
Paul begins by praying. The Spirit gives strength to the believers. Give them strength and power in their hearts. Step one. He moves up. May this power enable their faith to remain steadfast. And may it be the thing that causes and helps and encourages and enables the power of Christ to continue His transforming work in their lives and in their hearts. As Christ's work is, in fact, the work of love in our hearts, and when He takes up residence in our hearts, He then sets us firm in the middle of His love, like a, like a tree rooted in the soil of His love, like a building built on the foundation of Christ's love. And once the believers then are set in the middle of Christ's love, Paul prays for more strength. Prays for more strength from the Spirit that will enable them to understand, to comprehend comprehend just how much Christ's love has accomplished. What's the length of it? What's the height of it? What's the depth of it? And at this point, we have to dive. The depth, the length, the breadth, the height of God's love, broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt that sinner to the heavens. Oh, the deep, deep, deep love of Jesus, far surpassing All the rest. Tis an ocean full of blessing in the middle of every test. This was the scripture that changed my life. I wonder if you know the experience to be left to shoulder the weight of your sin. To be left helpless and crushed and suffocating under the guilt of your sin. Do you feel that pressure on you? Do you see how high and how broad and how long and how heavy is the weight of your sin this morning? Christ's love is deeper, is broader, is longer, is higher than any of that. His grace is sufficient to remove it. I encourage you, let Him lift the burden off you this morning. Trust in Him to take care of what you cannot. Then Paul asks that they be given even more strength. He keeps moving up the staircase. More strength. That through the Spirit's power they might know what otherwise can't be known. A deep spiritual understanding of the love of Jesus in their hearts, working out in their lives, in their minds, and with other people. And once all this, all these steps are climbed, and all this is accomplished, Paul's ultimate prayer for them will be realized that they will be filled up with the fullness of God. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 explains what Paul means by this phrase, the fullness of God. Jesus, who's alive and head over the whole church, 
He is the fullness of God. And God's purpose is to fill the church with Jesus and with his character. To fill it fully. To fill us with Christ's love, his grace, his power, his spirit, his knowledge, his inheritance, his riches, his might, his wisdom, his revelation, his power, and his life. And to fill us fully. You can see why Paul calls these the unfathomable and unsearchable riches of Jesus' grace. Is this how we pray? Is this what we pray for? Are Paul's priorities reflected in the priorities of our prayers? I was talking with a group of men in this church about this passage just last week. And we all had to confess that, man, we have such low aspirations in our prayers. Such low aspirations. Could it be that our low aspirations in our prayers are causing us to totally miss God's high priorities for our life? If we spend a lot of time praying that God would simply just fix our circumstances the way we want them fixed, there's something big we're going to miss. God's plans for our circumstances. Plans to fill us fully with strength, with faith, with knowledge of Him and hope. How would you gain those things if God just resolved your circumstances? And knowing God's priorities will change our prayers for each other. We won't pray that God would just bless so-and-so and and keep so-and-so. As we're so often to be vague, at least I am in my prayers like that. No, we'll start praying that they'll be caught up in amazement at the love of God. And that they'll be swept away. Swept up into it. That God would help them to see things they themselves couldn't even comprehend. So let's change our prayers to fit these priorities. Let's use Scripture to guide us in that. Let's use this passage this week to shape our prayers for one another and for this church. You know, I think sometimes it's just tempting to look at Paul and say, Paul, be realistic. I'm a weak person. It's hard enough for me to think about the love of Christ right now, let alone in my week. And I get weak in my faith. And I don't feel this power. It's tempting to write this off as just sort of a flowery show of Paul's literary skill and nothing else. But before you do, notice, Paul agrees with you. Paul agrees with you. He doesn't expect you to fulfill this prayer. On your own. That's why he directs you to the one who will and can. We don't, that's why we don't pray to ourselves. Because we can't do anything to answer our prayers. But God can. And he does. The Father has promised to commit all his resources. 
to providing us with the riches of his glory. The spirit whose power brings the dead to life has power ready and already at work in our heart. The son, Jesus Christ, who loves with a love beyond what we can comprehend is using that love right now to make you and me more like him. That is the God we pray to with hope and trust and confidence. Let us have greater, more ambitious, more theological prayers. Look at all this that God is going to do to answer them. Take hope. Take courage. The God who answers prayer is unlimited. It's not as if He can only do what we think He can do. And isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ all the proof we need of that? God's priority for us is to fill us so full with Jesus that there's no space left for other things. No other desires but for Him. No other satisfactions but in Him. No loves but His. No worship but to Him. Everything we are filled by everything He is. So his priorities flow from his plan and his purpose for all of history to create his church through the blood of Jesus. A church that then displays his wisdom and his glory forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, the mystery of the cross we could not have comprehended. If not for your grace to reveal to us Jesus Christ and the gospel, we would still be wondering over what happened at Calvary. We would still be wondering over the promises that didn't seem to be met in the Old Testament. But we praise you that you have revealed yourself. You've made yourself known. You've shown us your plan. And you've included your church, us, in your purpose to magnify and glorify yourself everywhere, in every nation, and in every time and land, and for all eternity. Lord, shape our priorities around your priorities for us. Work out your priorities to grow us. Fill us with your power, with your faith. Transform us by your work in our hearts. Root us in your love. Establish us there so that we might be able to look around and see just how far all of it stretches and comprehend what we would otherwise not be able to know so that we might be full of you and do it all for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.